0: And tonight we're going to be looking at Daniel chapter 4, Daniel 4, and I remind you that there's a unique structure to chapters 2 through 7 of the 12 chapters of Daniel, and uh, that structure is that uh, the image of the statue in chapter 2 uh, corresponds to another uh, image of four kingdoms, In chapter 7, chapters 2 and chapter 7 correspond to each other. And then chapter 3 and uh, the fiery furnace of Daniel's three friends that we saw last week corresponds to what we'll see in a couple of weeks with Daniel in chapter 6 in the uh, lion's den. And then today, chapter 4 corresponds to chapter 5. So 2 and 7, 3 and 6, and 4 and 5. Chapter 4 today is about God's humbling of Nebuchadnezzar. And next week, we're going to see God's humbling of his successor, Belshazzar. So you have that structure, and uh, tonight we're going to see the first of the pair of chapters four and five, and the humbling of King Nebuchadnezzar. And so if you'll take a look at chapter four, King Nebuchadnezzar. To the peoples, nations, and men of every language who live in all the world, may you prosper greatly. It is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. How great are His signs, how mighty His wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. And what follows is 37 verses of a, a uh, unique chapter in all of the Word of God and in, in ancient literature. <laughs> because here you have a, a king and a world monarch who is giving praise to, to God and is recording, as we're going to see, his own bout with insanity as he gives this praise to God. God inflicts him, as we'll see, with seven years of insanity. And Nebuchadnezzar is recording his own ordeal with that. I mean, you won't find that anywhere. But that's what, he's, that's what he's doing here. So Daniel has written these 12 chapters. But here, chapter 4, is a chapter that, is, that originates with Nebuchadnezzar. Now, you'll see why I say it originates with Nebuchadnezzar in, in just a bit. But this chapter is about God humbling Nebuchadnezzar and then the outcome of that humility uh, being perhaps uh, and even probably that Nebuchadnezzar comes to, comes to the Lord, the true and living God through this. So it's, it's an amazing thing in, indeed. And think about as, you, as we look at this chapter together Think about, yes, the big picture, that this is about this great king, Nebuchadnezzar, being humbled, and then through that humility, uh, coming to a knowledge of the true and living God. But think as well, behind that, think about Daniel. And Daniel was, as we see through the book of Daniel, a man of prayer, a man of character, a man of courage. And what do you think the likelihood is that Daniel is not only praying for his own safety, not only praying for his own nation, but is actually praying for this guy, Nebuchadnezzar. And then out of that comes this salvation of of this king, this very unlikely, very unlikely outcome. And so it's a unique chapter indeed. And the theme of it is God's dealings with Nebuchadnezzar. And God says... Uh, In verse 25, if you'll take a look at verse 25. Daniel interprets yet another dream of Nebuchadnezzar. And in verse 25 says, You will be driven away from people. You will live with the wild animals, eat grass like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for, for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. So this is the theme. This is God showing who's in control and teaching that very personally and directly to Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar then uh, records through either Daniel or uh, some of his scribes what happened with him. And the verses we just read at the beginning... Our Nebuchadnezzar starting out and saying, here's my story. Here's what happened. And here's how I came to understand what he says in verse 2. It's my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. And then he goes on to extol him. How great are his signs, mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to, to generation. so that's what this, this chapter is about. It's about this, this king being brought low and, uh, and then coming to understand what he starts out with in these first three verses. And behind that is Daniel, and in all likelihood Daniel praying for this very thing to come come to pass, and it does. Behind this is as well is, yes, the might, the sovereignty of God, the prayer and the faith of of Daniel, but also the bankruptcy of worldly wisdom. Here is Daniel in Babylon, and this is the seat of higher learning in the then-known world. And yet, its king is being brought low, and in the contest between the scholars, the astrologers, the magicians, the diviners, all of those that you see listed in that contest, who is it that comes out? Always, it's it's Daniel. And so behind this as well is another kind of sub-theme that God is weaving into this, this story. Now, it starts out uh, with, it says, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the people's nations, men of every language who live in all the world. So this is... Uh, this is authored, though probably not penned, this chapter, by Nebuchadnezzar. And so it's from him to everybody. And he wants everybody to know what happened. I mean, this is like Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. Let me tell you what happened to me. Now, I said he probably didn't, didn't pin it. So, so who did? Well, we, we're, we don't know. It may well have been Daniel himself. Uh, there's some evidence that I'll point to that Daniel certainly influenced what's written here, or it may have been some of those who served underneath Nebuchadnezzar, and he's dictating, and then they're writing, what it was that, that happened to him. And he says in, uh, in verse 1, it's me to everybody, so <laughs> this shows you who this guy was. The whole world cares about what happened to me. And indeed, they did, and so he writes to to tell the whole world. But then he says at the end of verse one, "May you, everybody, prosper greatly." So here is this king writing a letter, basically, it's me, Nebuchadnezzar, to y'all. Peace to you. In fact, in fact, uh, the word salom, uh which is which is the uh, which is the ancient Near East term equivalent to Shalom in Hebrew, you remember that these chapters are not written in Hebrew. Chapters 2 through 7 are written in, in Aramaic. Uh, but peace is the idea. Translated in the NIV, may you prosper greatly. Peace to you. Now, some people have said, you know, that just does not sound like something that a Nebuchadnezzar would have written. And do you remember that I've told you as we've gone through the first three chapters that there are these critics of the book of Daniel. And they don't believe, they just can't br- bring themselves to believe that a guy who purported to live at the time Daniel did was able to predict all the things that Daniel predicted. Living in the time of the first world kingdom that he was able to predict the next three world kingdoms and then, and then beyond. They just can't do that. And so anytime they find anything that they think is any sort of an anachronism, that is, it's, it's out of date, out of time sequence, they jump on that. And this phrase, may you prosper greatly, is, is supposedly one of those. But notice in chapter 6 and in verse 25. King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and men of every language throughout the land. May you prosper greatly. So these kings are like in the habit of doing this. You know, memo to the world. We want everybody to get the memo. So it's me, the king, to all of you, and saying precisely the same thing, and then issuing this, issuing this decree. So that's what you have in, in chapter 4. You have uh, Nebuchadnezzar writing, and he's writing to uh, everybody, and he's giving his testimony of, of what happened uh, to him. And these are then the last recorded words of Nebuchadnezzar. And they have a number of expressions in them that are are very similar to things that you find in other places in the Old Testament. And that's why then, I said earlier, who helped him write this? Um, He could have had one of his underlings, a scribe. But Daniel, in all likelihood, had influence on it. Because you see phrases in what Nebuchadnezzar is recounting that are like other things in the Old Testament. So in the beginning here, verse 3, he says, His, God's kingdom, is an eternal kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. Now that sounds very much like places like Psalm 145. Psalm 145 and verse 13. Here's what it says. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And your dominion endures through all generations. Almost identical in Psalm 145 to what Nebuchadnezzar is dictating in Daniel chapter 4. Now the truth is this Babylonian king knows nothing about Hebrew scripture. But Daniel does. And so Daniel either wrote that helped him in the composition, or Daniel's influence in being with Nebuchadnezzar over time is reflected in now the way Nebuchadnezzar is is talking. And he mentions the signs and wonders, verse 2, that the Most High God has performed for me. If you look at chapter 6 and verse 21, Daniel says, "O King, live forever!" My God sent His angel. Shut the mouths of the lions. They have not hurt me because I was found innocent in His sight. Nor have I ever done any wrong before you, O King. So here's an example of the kinds of signs and and wonders that uh, that are that the Lord God is is able to do. So that's the setting. Nebuchadnezzar, his experiences, ultimately, as we will see, in all likelihood, coming to knowledge of the true and living God, recounting what has happened to him, having someone else, perhaps Daniel, perhaps a scribe, record that for posterity and for the then then world. So here's what he says then. Here's my testimony. Verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous, I had a dream that made me afraid as I was lying in my bed. The images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. When the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Finally, Daniel came into my presence. I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar. After the name of my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. Yikes, what is all of that? (laughs) So, I, Nebuchadnezzar, this is what happened. Here's how it started. And so let's do our best to try to put it together. One, when is all this happening? Now, you may remember, but probably not, that he started his reign in 605 B.C. 605 B.C. And he reigned until 562 B.C. And so he had a 43-year-long uh, reign, did Nebuchadnezzar. And so where in that long reign does this happen? Well, it is in all likelihood happening uh, in, uh, toward the end of his reign. Now, why do we say that? Because as he goes through this testimony in chapter 4, he talks about all of the stuff that he's been able to accomplish. So as he recounts this, this is happening apparently at the end, toward the end of of his reign. If you look at verse 30 of chapter 4, he says, Is not this the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? Now again, remember, he's recording what happened to him, and we'll see what happened to him after he utters those words. You don't want to be standing by a dude who says that. <laughs> okay? Uh, but that's, that's what he says. That's what he recounts. But notice he's talking about all his exploits, all the stuff he was able to do. So his goal of establishing Babylon as the center of the world is accomplished. He's been able to rebuild Babylon. That's the great goal of his reign. It's been accomplished. So we're toward the end of his reign. Uh, somewhere near this 562 B.C. period. But, as you see as well in his testimony, God inflicts him with insanity. And in fact, uh, he's inflicted with that if you look at verse 29. He has this, he has this dream... 12 months according to verse 29 before God inflicts him all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar verse 28 12 months later as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon he he said and then this is what uh, this is what ends up happening to him he ends up being hit with these seven uh, seven years of insanity And so verse 31, the words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You'll be driven away from people. You will live with the wild animals. Eat eat grass like cattle. Now notice this. Seven times will pass by until you acknowledge the Most High is sovereign. Seven times will pass by. And that's why we say he had this seven-year Insanity, seven times. Now, it it doesn't say seven years. It says seven, seven times. So why why do we call that seven years, and how does that help us place when this is happening? Verse 30 says he's accomplished all this stuff, so it's happening toward the end of his reign. But seven years of his testimony were spent in this insane period, and then he has at least a few years of recovery. So if you do the math on that, if he reigned until 562 B.C., you at least have to back it up about 9 or 10 10 years. And so you you probably have this happening around 569, 570 B.C. is probably when this is taking place. Now, it says seven times, not seven years, that he'll have this insanity. So why do we call it seven years? Well, here's why. Notice chapter 7. If you turn over to chapter 7, verses 23 to 25. Remember, chapter 7 corresponds to chapter 2. Chapter 2 has the the great image, head of gold, chest and arms of silver, uh, belly and thighs of bronze, and then the legs of iron and clay. And then in chapter 7, there's another vision of four world kingdoms. And in verse 23, God gives this explanation. The fourth beast is a fourth kingdom that will appear on earth. It will be different from all the other kingdoms and will devour the whole earth, trampling it down and crushing it. The ten horns are ten kings who will come from this kingdom. After them, another king will arise different from the earlier ones. He will subdue three kings. He will speak against the Most High and oppress his saints and try to change the set times and the laws the Saints will be handed over to him for now notice a time times and half a time what is that and this goes back to then chapter 4 where uh, Nebuchadnezzar has this insanity For seven times, it says. And God's people are going to be handed over to this king that will come. We know him as the Antichrist for time, times, and and half a time. And as well, chapter 12. If you look at chapter 12, the last chapter of Daniel. Verses 5 through 7. Then I, Daniel, looked, and there before me stood two others, one on this bank of the river and one on the opposite bank, one of them said to the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river, how long will it be before these astonishing things are fulfilled? The man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the river lifted his right hand and his left hand toward heaven, and I heard him swear by him who lives forever, saying, it will be four. A time, times, and a half a time. What is that? Well, you remember a couple of weeks ago, I think it was, that we did some correspondence between the book of Daniel, and the last book in your Bible, the book of Revelation. And there is great correspondence between the two. And we'll see more of that as we go. But one of the ways in which they correspond is, when, you get to, when we get to Daniel chapter 9, we'll need to spend some time on this very important passage in verses 24 through 27, Daniel 9, 24 to 27. It speaks of a period of time that God has appointed to his people, the Jews, his chosen people, the Jews. And he calls that period of time 70 70 weeks in the King James or 70 sevens, it says literally. 70 periods of seven something. Well, if you you put it in its context, you'll see that it's 70 periods of seven years or 490 years. And then as we will see in Daniel chapter 9, 483 of those years have already been done. So you've got one period of seven years still hanging out there. And the book of Revelation devotes several chapters to what happens in that final period of seven years. And as we will see, that final period of seven years is divided into two halves, three and a half years each. In the middle of that seven years, this one, the Antichrist, will perform an abomination that causes desolation in the temple in Jerusalem. And he will begin his fury and his terror upon God's people. And it will last for three and a half years. Or time, one year, times, plural, two more, and half a time, half a year, three and a half years. So that's the language with which the book of Daniel speaks of a year as a a time. And so you have time one year and times two more. That's three and and then half a time, half of another year, three and a half years, speaking of this time, as we've read in chapter 7 and in chapter 12, in which the Antichrist will do his horrible work during the seven-year tribulation. So that's why we say then, when chapter 4, and Nebuchadnezzar gives his testimony, and he says that He's told by God that you're going to have seven times that will pass until you acknowledge the Most High and His dominion over all the earth. That means seven years. You're going to be insane. And you're going to act the way that is described in uh, in chapter four. So when is this happening? It's happening around uh, 570 B.C. You know, eight to ten years out from the end of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. He's looking back, and only two years before all of all of this, <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar has uh, gone to a city called tyre, T y-r e Tyre, and he's tried to uh, besiege it. He did, but he was only partly successful. And we're going to read that in just a minute. Uh, so just a few years before this, he's toward the you know the end of his his time, but he goes uh, on this campaign in this uh, coastal city off the Mediterranean, uh, Tyre. And as I say, he's only partly successful. And God uh, gives him the opportunity to plunder Egypt. And the Bible says after only being partially successful in Tyre, he goes and plunders Egypt. And it's shortly after after that, uh, all of that is happening that he has this this dream so here's a guy toward the end He's accomplished a bunch of bunch of stuff in Babylon he has this great success in Egypt and then God is going to God is going to humble him now where do, do we learn that he went to Tyre and he went to Egypt Ezekiel chapter 29 the book just before Daniel so if you turn to your left a little bit Ezekiel 29 beginning in verse 17. In the 27th year, in the first month, on the first day, the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, drove his army in a hard campaign against Tyre. Every head was rubbed bare, every shoulder made raw. Yet he and his army got no reward from the campaign he led against Tyre. Therefore, verse 19, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I'm going to give Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he will carry off its wealth. He will loot and plunder the land as pay for his army. I have given him Egypt as a reward for his efforts because he and his army did it for me, declares the Sovereign Lord. Yikes, what? (laughs) So here's this pagan king. And God is saying, you did it for me. Now, what does that tell you about the theme of the book of Daniel? Do you remember we said the theme of the book of Daniel is God's in control of everything, God's sovereign? And that's, again, what's being driven home here, isn't it? I mean, this is what Ezekiel says. And by the way, Ezekiel is written at the time of this Babylonian captivity, uh, as is Daniel. And so he's writing about the career and the exploits of Nebuchadnezzar because he's living at the same time. And yet, here is God using Nebuchadnezzar and using him as his tool. So always remember this, dear friends. Everybody works for God. Even people who don't know it (laughs) and people who don't want to. Everybody works for God. Ain't nobody can do nothing to you. Outside of what God allows, and so God is in control even over people who, at this point, don't know it and don't want to. In the case of, in the case of uh, um, Nebuchadnezzar, take a look at Jeremiah chapter forty-three. So again, turn to your left a little bit. Jeremiah forty-three, verse ten. This is what the Almighty, the God of Israel, says. I will send for my servant servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. And I will set his throne over these stones I have buried here. And he will spread his royal canopy above them. He will come and attack Egypt, bringing death to those destined for death, captivity to those destined for captivity, and the sword to those destined for the sword. He'll set fire to the temples of the gods of Egypt. Okay, so here's this whole Egyptian thing that, that you read about in Ezekiel being spoken of in Jeremiah as as well, and Nebuchadnezzar being used as God's tool. There's a tablet that's been found through all the archaeological digs that have been done in Palestine, and uh, it reads this way. In the 37th year, that would be 568 BC, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, marched against Egypt to deliver a battle. And so upon his return to Babylon, he's flushed with victory and pride, and that's when he makes this fateful statement in verse 30 of chapter 4, is this not Babylon? Look at all the stuff I have done. Okay? So that's the, that's the setting of what's uh, going on with uh, Nebuchadnezzar. And then verses 4 through 7 go on to, to tell us then. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. So that's when all this is going down. He is laying back. Now, You know, early on in his career, he was often out in military campaigns. He's recently gone on these military campaigns, and yet here, here he is. Now, contented, laying back, prosperous. In fact, uh, the word that's translated uh, "prosperous" uh, literally means to be green. So I was I was prosperous or flourishing. Now he's going to have a God's going to give him a dream of what exactly. <laughs> so here he is looking back. Now remember, Nebuchadnezzar's already experienced all this. He's now looking back on this, and as he thinks about what he was doing, I was sitting around. And I am just flush with uh, success, fruit of my labor. And now God is going to, and God in turn gives him a dream that shows him a tree, but a tree that's going to be cut down, right? And is looking back on it and going, okay, I get it. I see where I was, what I was thinking, and I see what, why God gave me the kind of, the kind of um, um, dream that he did. And so, verse 4, I was in, at home, in my palace, contented, prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. I'm lying in my bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded all the wise men of Babylon be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. Now, remember back in chapter, back in chapter 2, uh, he tells them to in, interpret the dream, and I had made the case that I think he remembered the dream. Unlike what you often hear, he forgot the dream. So, so tell me the dream. I think he remembered the dream, and here again, he remembers the dream, but he's having these guys uh, in, interpret it for him. And when they came, the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, diviners, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Now, how does he know that they couldn't interpret it? Well, you know, he's he's already he's lost faith in these guys a long time ago. <laughs> Right. Um, He's got them They're, You know, as part of his as part of his, you know, if uh, political diplomacy, he keeps them around. But the truth is, he doesn't have much faith in them. And so he doesn't have faith in the interpretation they they offer. And so he knows somebody who can do this because he's already seen it before. Right. And in verse eight, Daniel came finally. Into my presence. And I told him the dream. He is called Belteshazzar after the name of my God, and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. So remember back in chapter 1 that to thoroughly immerse these young men who have been deported from Jerusalem to Babylon in pagan Babylonian culture, Daniel and his three friends are given Babylonian names. And Belteshazzar is the name that's given to, to Daniel. And do you remember at that time we talked about the fact that that's related to the chief god of Babylon, Bel or Baal, also known as, as Marduk. And Nebuchadnezzar named his son after Marduk. And so he was so devoted to this chief god of, of Babylon. And here is, here is Daniel being called Bel Belteshazzar. Now, why does why does Nebuchadnezzar mention this? That Daniel is got this name uh, Belteshazzar. Well, remember who this is being written to. This is being written to everybody. This is being written to the to the whole world. And so uh, his Babylonian name is used. And indeed, his name is after the name of my God. At that point, at least, in the story that Nebuchadnezzar is recounting, his God was indeed a uh, And then he says the spirit of the holy gods uh, is, is in him. And that phrase, the spirit of the holy gods, can be translated as singular, actually. The spirit of the God, the holy God. And so it, can be, it actually can be translated either plural, gods, or or God. And given that he's calling him by his pagan Babylonian name, he's looking back on what happened before he came to a knowledge of the true and living God, he may just be recounting that at that point, I did indeed think of the God of Israel as just one among the many gods. So it could be the true and living God, or it could be just one among the pantheon of gods as he saw it, before he was converted. All right, and then verse 9. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream, interpret it for me. Now, he says, Belteshazzar, chief of the, the magicians. And you read that, that word, and you may think that Daniel was involved in, in magic. <clears throat> but the word that's translated magician Uh, can be translated chief among the scholars. And that's probably more accurate with regard to who Daniel was and what his position was. You're chief among the learned men. And he has shown himself now long enough to be wise that he's uh, earned this appellation, chief of the scholars. I know that the Spirit of the Holy God is in you. No mystery is too difficult for you. Here's my dream. Interpret it for me. Verse 10. These are the visions I saw while lying on my bed. I looked and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong. And the top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, fruit abundant. And on it was food for all. Under it, the beasts of the field found shelter. The birds of the air lived in its branches. From it, every creature was fed. In the visions I saw while lying in my bed, I looked and there before me was a messenger, a holy one coming down from heaven. He called in a loud voice, cut down the tree, trim off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground in the grass of the field. And then it goes goes on. (laughs) So, you're Nebuchadnezzar. You've already been told once you're the head of gold. There will be a kingdom to come after you. Now you see this great and prosperous tree that's going to be cut down, and you're sweating it. And undoubtedly, he he did he he feared the truth. And it may be, maybe, that that's why Daniel was the last guy that he summons. I know Daniel's going to give me the real deal. And I think I know what the real deal is. That tree's going to be me. And uh, it's, not, it's not good news for me. And so that's the, that's the image that, that he has, this, uh, this image of this great tree. And it says that an angelic one, a holy one, descends from, from heaven. Now again, th- those who criticize the book of Daniel and its theology say that in verse 13, a messenger, a, a holy one coming down from heaven indicates that you know, that, that Daniel uh, was, was living at a time of polytheism and that here's an example of, of polythe, a belief in polytheism, not monotheism, not one God but many gods, a holy one among many holy ones as if, as if that's a God. But, but notice... The, the person the, that's mentioned here is mentioned singular. Messenger, holy one coming down, coming down from heaven. And further, it's going to go on to say in verse 24 that what the angel says is actually the decree of the Most High. Notice verse 24. This is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my lord the king. So, this is God's decree, the one true and living God, the Most High. And yes, it's being delivered by a messenger, by an angel, but this person is being distinguished from the Most High. And so, contrary to the idea that there, is a, there are many gods, or, and there's any hint of belief in many gods here, there's the Most High God, the one true and living God, and then there is the, His intermediaries. And so Daniel, in his interpretation, just bypasses the intermediaries and says this is coming directly from the the true and living God. The messenger goes on to say in verse verse 15, Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, live with the wild animals among the plants of the earth, let his mind be changed from that of a man, and let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of men. This is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means. For none of the wise men in my kingdom can interpret it. But you can, because the spirit of the holy gods is is in you. And so... Nebuchadnezzar recounts his, his, his dream, and he is, according to verses 15 and 16, he's going to live among the animals. His mind will be changed from that of a man It'll be given the mind of an animal. And so he will behave like an, an oxen now. And um, this, this is called boanthropy. There's actually a term for it. It's a, it's, a, it's a very rare thing, but people are sometimes inf- have been infected such that their their brains uh, behave like a bovine. that's why, that's why bo- an anthropos is, is man, human. Boanthropy. and that's what God afflicts this guy with for seven years. How humiliating for this great for this great king. And so that's what he heard, but now he wants to—he uh, wants to know what it means. Verse nineteen. Then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time. His thoughts terrified him. So the king said, "Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you." Belteshazzar answered, "My lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries, the tree you saw, which grew." large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth with beautiful leaves, abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the beasts of the field, having nesting places in its branches for the birds of the air. You, O king, are that tree. you become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky. Your dominion extends to in distant parts of the earth. You, O king, saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it. But leave the stump bound with iron and bronze, In the grass of the field, while its roots remain in the ground, let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live like the wild animals until seven times pass by for him. This is the interpretation. You will be driven away from people. Live with the wild animals, eat grass like cattle, and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by for you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and gives them to anyone he wishes. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, O king, be pleased to accept my advice renounce your sins by doing what is right, and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be then your prosperity will continue. And then it goes on to talk about what happened. Now here's Daniel pleading with him. Repent. He doesn't. He goes on to have these afflictions uh, given to him, but then ultimately he, he comes back. Now... He makes this, uh, this, this great boast. He sees this. Daniel interprets it for him. Daniel pleads with him to repent. He doesn't. And then God enacts what he gave to him in the dream. And verse 28 says, All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, as the king was walking, he said, Is not this the great Babylon I have built? as the royal residence, by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty, the words were still on his lips when a voice came from heaven. The words were still on his lips. So God is making very clear why this is happening. And often in Scripture, you have God executing kind of some summary judgment on people, don't you? You all remember uh, in Acts chapter 5? Ananias and Sapphira... And they are giving while they're giving their deceptive offering. God kills them. And so God is making clear why this is happening. Because of your pride, as this is on his lips, as he is boasting about his greatness and all that he has accomplished, God takes action right at that moment. Same thing he did with Ananias and Sapphira. He's making clear the reason for which this is happening. It's related to this offering, Peter goes on to explain precisely what, what had happened. And so you're going to have your kingdom brought, uh, brought back to you despite the fact that you're a pompous king. So what else does this tell you about God? I mean, we see very clearly, as, as is the theme of Daniel, God is sovereign over everyone. Everybody works for God. Even Nebuchadnezzar is called his servant, all that. But what else do you see here? What about the grace of God? This pompous king is going to have his kingdom restored to him. God's going to teach him this lesson over the seven-year period, but he's going to restore this to him. Not only restore this to him, but bring him to a knowledge of, of himself through this as well. And so, friends, as you read through Scripture and you read through the narratives, the stories of Scripture, you will find God often dealing severely with sinful people. But always, always look, because it's there to be found, the grace of God, despite the rebelliousness and the pride and the pomp and the sinfulness of, of people. Now, Nebuchadnezzar says, Is this not Babylon, you know, that I built, and boasts about how great it is? I want to take some time to talk about the fact that he is not blowing smoke when he talks about how great Babylon is. Babylon was truly great. Babylon was almost unbelievable in its majesty, in its glory. I'm going to talk about some of what comprised Babylon. But so great was the kingdom of Nebuchadnezzar and the glory days of Babylon. Did you all know that Saddam Hussein, who lived in the area that is Babylon, Iraq, modern day Iraq, that, you know, he and his people so yearn for the glory days of Nebuchadnezzar, that he actually had coins minted with Nebuchadnezzar's image on them. Saddam Hussein did that. And the and, and what he promoted to the Iraqi people is we are going to restore the greatness of Nebuchadnezzar. It, truly great. And just Think about some of what comprised Babylon. There have been archaeological digs, a German archaeologists from 1899 to 1917, 18-year, 19-year period, uh, recovered much of the ruins of Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. And here's some of what was found. The city was protected by a system of double walls, the outer line extending 10 miles around. The double walls were each 25 feet thick with 40 feet in between them. So you've got 90 feet total, 40 feet in between, 25 feet thick for each of these walls. They had a total of 260 towers along these walls that were 160 feet apart. Through the center of the city for two-thirds of a mile, There was a 70-foot-wide street called the Procession Street. It had walls decorated with enameled bricks showing 120 lions, 575 dragons, and bulls arranged in alternate rows. The figure of each animal stood out against a uniform background that was tinted in blue. The architecture and ornamentation were skillfully adapted to each other. The animals were carved to scale, Despite how many there were, their multitude, the arrangement was orderly and harmonious. At the northern end of this procession street was a famous gate called the Ishtar Gate, 35 feet high, decorated with 557 animals in bright colors against glazed blue background. That gate is, that original gate, is currently in Berlin, Germany. And there's an exact replica of that gate uh, at the uh, University of Chicago as well. The city was dominated by a seven-story stepped pyramid. It was 288 feet high. It was known as the Tower of Babylon. Nearly, now hear this. Nearly 60 million fired bricks were used to construct this tower. And on top of it, on top of this 200, seven stories, 288 feet, on top of it is the Temple of Marduk. And that contained a solid gold statue of Marduk that weighed 52,000 pounds. At the north end of the city, near this Ishtar gate, was Nebuchadnezzar's palace. His throne room was 171 by 56 feet. It had a triple gateway, richly decorated facade with glazed bricks. There were yellow columns, with Greek lettering on them. And they were linked uh, to to one another. At the northeast angle of the palace are the remains of vaults that were supports for the hanging gardens that were built by Nebuchadnezzar. Have anybody ever heard of the Hanging Gardens of Babylon? One of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the Hanging Gardens of, of Babylon you could go on and on and on about the glory of the majesty of Babylon. And here this guy is looking back and saying, look at what I built, and he was not blowing smoke. <laughs> it was glorious indeed. So the accuracy of this boast by Nebuchadnezzar has been confirmed by by archaeology. But you know, it had not been previously known until this German archaeologist digs up these these ruins. So You know, you're reading for all these centuries in the book of Daniel and you can only guess, but then this stuff gets dug up and you go, holy cow, look at that. This guy really was that head of gold. This guy really did, uh, was able to boast of all these things. But prior to that, ancient historians referred to Nebuchadnezzar as just a great general and a conqueror. So what happens with all these critics then, you know, who again have to bow to the Bible reluctantly? Because what it describes is accurate, and archaeology just has to catch up. And so here's what a Harvard University liberal, he was an Old Testament scholar, but he's liberal. He doesn't believe the Bible. He doesn't believe Daniel was written at the time of Nebuchadnezzar. But this is what he said. We shall presumably never know how our author, notice how he says, how our author, you know, whoever he was, how our author learned. That the new Babylon was the creation of Nebuchadnezzar, as the excavations have proved. So he says it's proven it, but he can't bring himself to admit that indeed it was it was Daniel uh, who was living during that during that time. So God brings all this to pass upon Nebuchadnezzar. He has the seven years of insanity, but then as God promised in his grace Nebuchadnezzar is restored. Verse 34. At the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Do you remember how this thing started? He says, this is my testimony about how I came to believe that. Now he gives you all the stuff that happened in between, and now he's repeating that again. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor was re- were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out. And I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now, my advisors and nobles, they sought me out, implying that they hadn't been seeking him out for obvious reasons. (laughs) I mean, he'd, he'd lost it completely, right? He's gone for seven years. So who's running the show during those seven years, do you think? Think about this. There is one guy... In the kingdom, who knows how long this is going to last? And it's Daniel. And so Daniel bides his time, does his thing. He's the one guy in the kingdom who knows exactly how how long this is this is going to to last. And so Daniel, his runs the show, keeps it in place for Nebuchadnezzar until God fulfills what He has said, and and restores him. And then verse 37, Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Wow, what what an unbelievable story. So what happened then with Nebuchadnezzar? Well, you know, after going back and forth and looking at what he says, it looks like God brought him to a true knowledge of who the true and living God is. And did a and did a work in his a work in his heart. I mean, he acknowledges that he's on the throne because of an absolutely sovereign God. And he admits that this divine favor from God is completely undeserved, verse thirty five. All the people of the earth are regarded as nothing. God doesn't have to have to do this for me. That's quite a change from this guy, isn't it? And his pomposity. And then in verse 37, he talks about praising and exalting and honoring God. And he shows then some fruit of having been changed for the remaining few years of his his life. And then Daniel goes on to speak about uh, this, about Nebuchadnezzar. Again, in in chapter 7, remember chapter 2 talks about the four world kingdoms and the statue. Chapter 7 is going to... Do that as well. And so Daniel speaks of, of Babylon again, and Daniel speaks of it him as a lion with wings of eagle of an eagle who were, quote, made to stand on two feet like a man, a human mind also was given to it. it it's a description of a complete transformation of Nebuchadnezzar's nature. And so John Walvard, and I'll end with that, John Walvard says this. Nebuchadnezzar reaches a new spiritual perspicacity. Here's the irony of that word. It means clear. <laughs> Nothing like an unclear word to, for clear, right? But he reaches a new spiritual clarity. Prior to his experience of insanity, his confessions were those of a pagan whose polytheism permitted the addition of new gods. And so, back in chapter 2 and chapter 3, remember the God of Israel is just one among the many, many gods. Now Nebuchadnezzar apparently worships the king of heaven only. For this reason, his autobiography is truly remarkable and reflects the fruitfulness of Daniel's influence upon him and probably of Daniel's daily prayers for him. Certainly God is no respecter of persons and can save the high and mighty in this world as well as the lowly. Let's remember that. And let's remember that as we pray for kings and all those in authority, First Timothy chapter 2. Even those kings and those in authority you don't like and didn't vote for. Right? Let's be dismissed in prayer. Father, we thank you for this wonderful demonstration of your power and your might, your sovereignty over your world. We thank you for recording these words for us and preserving them for our learning. Lord, help us to learn. Everybody works for God. Help us, therefore, to not fear. Help us, Lord, to draw the applications uh, that you intend for us out of these marvelous stories to our own lives here and now. Lord, we acknowledge that you are no respecter of persons. And you, your arm is not shortened that it cannot save. You can rescue, deliver, save anyone. And so, Lord, we pray for our president. We pray that you would move in him, that you would cause events in his life to turn his gaze toward you and toward the cross, and that he might be a changed man. And that he might intentionally and willfully and joyously pursue your agenda. He still works for you. But Lord, we pray that he'll want to work for you. And he'll do so for your glory. In the meantime, Lord, help us to intentionally and joyfully and willfully work for the God who is on the throne. Go with us this week as we seek to show a difference in our outlook in life. In our homes, in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods that we believe we serve the true and living God, and though there are troubles all around us, we are not swayed because we know everything is happening according to your plan and on your calendar. Go with us and bring us back safely. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.